Decolonization Initiative Podcast. I am your host, Tanya Rodriguez, and I am here with Eric Serafin, also known as Mixer Man, who is the man behind the music in this podcast. He is a published author, gold platinum music producer, and also my loving husband. Indeed. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for being here. Hey, Tanya. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going? Good. How you doing? Good. Just getting my stopwatch going here. Thank you. Thank you for being the timekeeper. You're welcome. We will be discussing a few topics today. First, we have the Global Uprising Report. Our subject today is navigating biracial relationship. And of course, we will be bringing you the GDI Cocotazo of the Week, the GDI Shoutout of the Week, and our philanthropy initiative, which gives you the information you need to donate to a different cause each podcast so that you can give back to those harmed by colonialism and capitalism around the globe. So stay tuned, because it's about to get real. Global Uprising Report. France, uprising since the 17th of November 2018, one year, two months, ten days. Uprising status, ongoing From redflag.org.au, Axel Pearson, who is a train driver and secretary of the rail workers branch of the Confederation Générale du Travail, CGT Union Federation and Traps, was interviewed for Red Flag by Darren Rosso. Can you explain the differences and similarities of the strike wave as compared to the December 1995 strikes? Axel replies, both strikes were organized as a reaction against the government's plan to smash the pension schemes. The difference between the 1995 and 2019 is that the 1995 pension reform specifically targeted public sector workers. 2019 reform attacks all workers, both from the public and private sector. The situation in 2019 is much different from 1995 in the sense that organized labor, particularly the CGT Union Federation, while still able to wield considerable industrial muscles, has been considerably weakened in the private industrial sector as a result of decades of layoffs, redundancies, and the multiplication of subcontracting, agency work, etc. Given the important role of transportation in society in France, workers within these branches have a particular clear consciousness of the collective strength the withdrawal of their labor represents. They organize in general daily assemblies where they decide whether and how to pursue the strike. They also elect, depending on specifics of their workplace, strike committees encompassing union members and non-union members to lead and organize the strike within their specific plant, depot, station, and so forth. 
All decisions, including the decision to continue the strike, are taken by vote in these assemblies open to all strikers, regardless of union affiliation or not. Whilst transport workers are at the forefront of the strike and have been so for 45 days, it is important to underline that other industries are now joining in the strike, relieving the transport workers who have gone for more than 45 days without pay. Dock workers also started striking massively all across the country from mid-January. One of the questions asked in the interview is poignant in understanding the intersections of these movements in France and the importance of these intersections. Can you explain the way the Yellow Vest movement has intersected with the strike wave? The Yellow Vest movement has intersected with the strike in the sense that it has encouraged the workers to resort to an all-out fight against the government. Also, the defiance against the national union leaderships expressed by many Yellow Vests has been seen also among strikers who are very determined to lead the strike and not let anybody decide for them when to stop or on what actions to take. While the Yellow Vest movement was not a strike movement per se, that is its biggest weakness, the general atmosphere of the resistance it has created has bolstered the strikers as a whole. Beirut, Lebanon rose up this past week as protesters took to the streets to rally against the new government, saying that the new government comprises of the same people they have been rallying against since October 17, 2019. The new cabinet, backed by Hezbollah and its allies, according to Al Jazeera, has forced the protesters to escalate and become no longer peaceful. One protester named Mohammed states, quote, they are stealing from us. We don't have electricity. We don't have hospitals. And we're starving to death, end quote. Another protester named Stephanie in an interview said, quote, they are here, the government military force, throwing water, meaning water cannons, at us, and I don't even have water at home. End quote. Due to a no-growth economy, heavy debt, lack of protection for its citizens, the appearance of an oligarchy government, and mass income instability are affecting the nation, especially affecting the opportunities for young people to finish college due to lack of funds being withheld by the government for education. This withholding of funds have contributed to a massive show of force from the youth that are desperate to and yet unable to continue their college education properly without concern from income insecurity. Puerto Rico. The people of Puerto Rico have taken to the streets this past week to call for the removal of Governor Wanda Vasquez due to lack of aid and the discovery of multiple warehouses of undistributed supplies of aid meant for the people of Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria two years ago. This discovery, amidst of a massive 
earthquake swarm, with some earthquakes of magnitude upwards of 6.5, have plagued the already struggling island that is caught in the crossfires of corruption, mismanagement of funds, a 13-year recession, and now new restrictions imposed by the U.S. in the midst of an unpredictable environmental and humanitarian crisis. As of today, two years later, there are still over 4,500 people in shelters displaced from Hurricane Maria. Puerto Rican singer Perez said, people should not wait until the general elections to express their discontent. We're not going to wait until November because the politicians in this country are not going to wait until November to steal. They're going to steal starting now. The recent lack of government aid, oversight, and bureaucratic processes, and the discovery of undistributed humanitarian supplies have given rise to a grassroots movement in Puerto Rico calling for the people of Puerto Rico to take care of each other and not to wait for the government to bring aid. This concludes our uprising report and brings us to our subject today. What's that? Navigating biracial relationship. Hi, Eric. Hi. Thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Mm, Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, isn't that what mom says? Thank you for, no, you say thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah. And then she goes, oh, all right, go on. All right. Well, you know, it's different with that. Right. You know, she actually had me. You have me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you for uh, bringing your wisdom about the realities of being in uh, a biracial relationship. Well, we'll see if it's wisdom. I can tell you my experiences. That's for sure. Well, experience, strength, and hope are definitely important to bring in for so many people that may be struggling in biracial relationships. Mm. I think one of the things that I that really brought in the reality that we're in a biracial relationship was when we were doing that workshop, the what do I do workshop, bringing awareness to bystander intervention. Mm-hmm. And I had you come to that workshop because I needed the the white male voice represented there uh, to bring in awareness f- to the white people that are attending the importance of standing up uh, in the face of oppression or when somebody is being uh, actively on the other side of of being racist you know, against or receiving racism, Mm -hmm. so to say. So one of the things that happened in that workshop that really, I mean, it it struck me big and um, was really profound, not only for me, but for everyone in the group and, and truly something that we've spoke about to our friends that are in biracial relationships that are struggling with one of the biggest issues of contention in biracial relationships, and that's being believed. So if I have a racist experience and you don't believe me, that hurts. Mm 
So can you share with us uh, what happened in that workshop and um, and and what how you got to that place? Yeah, I probably need to. <clears throat> I probably need to go f- more towards the beginning to get to there because it, it, it has been a journey, and we've lived in two distinctly different places. Mm. So when I met you, obviously you know all this, but when I met uh, <laughs> when I met you, I met you in California, and so like. Honestly, I didn't even notice you were Latina. (laughs) (laughs) To me, you were so white passing. It wasn't even like, I don't know that I thought about it. I don't know how much we talked about it. And even if we did, even if you told me you're Puerto Rican, that would be something that I'm familiar with, something that I grew up with because I grew up in New Jersey. Mm. And the thing is that I think that a lot of uh, biracial uh, relationships – Um, there are significant cultural differences, which makes, which is what, what one of the major challenges are. And so I don't feel that we had quite the, um, the, the cultural differences. There Mm -hmm. were cultural differences. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't, but they weren't, first of all, we're older. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're not coming in our 20s to our two families trying to put together two different families. We're kind of like everybody's kind of like, "Ah, they're going to do what they're going to do." So we don't have those <laughs> we don't have those pressures, right? Mm-hmm. And those are significant pressures. Those cause problems. Mm. We don't have to deal with that. Never have. <clears throat> the other thing is that I'm familiar with Puerto Ricans. You were born in uh on on the East Coast. So uh, th- w- w- with uh, with East Coasters, so you have that uh, cultural experience. Mm. We we are of the same generation and grew up in relatively the same time frame. We uh, and we both uh, spent significant time in California, mm-hmm. and California is is a, uh, a majority point. minority. So mm. I'm I was white there, and and. White privilege is alive and well in California. Don't believe for a moment it's not. But mm. but we it's part of our it's part of my daily life to interact with Latino people. Just in once California. in California, mm-hmm. every day, everywhere. Mm-hmm. These are people that <clears throat> I would hire that that I that would I would work with that would go to school with my children. My child, my children, my child, and mm. you know. So, all right. So, the first in our relationship, I don't know that race really was an issue in the first couple of years. I may be misremembering that, but that's how I remember it at the moment. And so, it wasn't really until we moved to Asheville. To north to the south, basically, and Appalachia, mm. two notoriously racist areas, that the race, our biracial, uh, started to, I wouldn't say become an issue, but where race started to become an issue uh, for you. And when race started to become an issue for you, then the race started to become an issue for me. 
right? Because mm. it affects, if it affects you, it's going to affect me and our mm. relationship. It's going to cause stress, mm -hmm. could cause arguments, mm. debates, disagreements. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so when we first came here, you know, my thought is whatever, let's not rock the boat. Okay, this person, you know, so an incident would happen, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say the, uh, one time we were looking at a house and then all of a sudden there's this mysterious phone call and, oh, the house has been rented by un unseen, right? And you're like, what? And I, I bought it. Now, I don't buy it now. <laughs> so, but I bought it at the time and there were probably a few other incidences and then this this kept bubbling up and and i kept wanting to give the, the white person the benefit of the doubt right and the reason that i wanted to give the white person the benefit of the doubt was because we don't know we don't know whether they're being racist or not so that's a bit accusatory so why should we why should we make pass that judgment which is but really frustrating for for you absolutely right. and so i started to realize that and then one day i kind of had this aha i don't know what if anything in particular caused it, but I'm always thinking and I had this aha and I realized, you know, my giving the white person the benefit of the doubt is not helping matters. Who I should be giving the benefit of the doubt is you. Mm. First of all, it really doesn't matter whether the incident that occurred was actually racist or whether it was unconscious bias, or whether it was a coincidence. Mm. It makes no difference. Because for you, it felt like racism. Mm. And so we came into basically a hostile environment from a non-hostile environment. And mm. so we had to adjust to that. Yeah. We still adjust to that. Mm -hmm. And so once I realized, well, wait a second, these incidences are hurting her feelings. So, like... They hurt my soul. Whether it was, whether the, it was an actual racial incident or not is irrelevant because what's, what's relevant is the, what makes the, 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 the racism so difficult is the unpredictability. Mm. If everybody was racist all the time, that'd be a lot easier to navigate than, you know... Some people being racist some of the time. Right. Because then you don't know when something happens, whether it was racially motivated or just appears racially motivated, right? Mm. So I just realized that if we I if you feel or if something appears like a racist situation, then it's probably best for us to well, first of all, it's certainly best for me to uh, just listen to you. Yes. Not argue with you about whether it was or wasn't. It doesn't matter. Right. You're expressing hurt to me, mm -hmm. right? And so I wanted to fix it. Oh, let me fix your hurt. No, baby, it wasn't that. Or ah. uh, no, baby, uh, you know. And then I realized I can't fix it. Mm. There's nothing I could do to fix it. You're just telling me. Mm. Like, I don't know why it takes most of us so long to realize people just want to tell us shit and they don't necessarily need to hear anything back. 
I started experimenting. I just let you talk and I'd say absolutely nothing. Mm. And like you were super appreciative after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, <laughs> oh shit, all I got to do is listen. Mm. And if I listen, she feels heard. Right. And if she feels heard, then the hurt from the racist incident is it's out of my body. Uh, uh, well, it, it's alleviated to some degree, whatever degree mm -hmm. that is. But if I try to fix you, I've exasperated the hurt. <laughs> I've right. all I've done is is add on top of it. Not only did you do you feel badly, but the person that you love doesn't acknowledge that you feel badly. Mm. Right? And That's so terrible. that was a a very valuable lesson just in relationships and in, in life and it, it really you know it we're, we're we're coming to this as a society too hashtag mm. me too right. oh we believe the women right right uh a black person's beat up by the cops oh we believe the black person well we have a little work on, <laughs> to do on that right mm. but that's where we're headed yeah i mean that's where we all have to go Right. So, you know, a lot of people want to ignore race or say race is not an issue. And for two years, race was not an issue. But we don't determine whether race is an issue. Other people determine whether race is an issue. When you say we, what do you... Who, me and you. Me and you. Yeah. Was race an issue to you? And did do you remember race coming up as an issue in the first couple of years? Not between us. No, we were in an environment where we were racially protected, right? And we're now in an environment where those protections aren't offered, right? I become your protection in some ways. Yeah, and you have. Like when we go out, uh, thank you for that. That's that's a lot of big, big uh, uh, lessons for people in biracial relationships. The, one of the things that I've noticed here is that here I'm not white passing. Right. And... Um, because of that, when we go out to have something to eat or we're somewhere random and we have to communicate with somebody, uh, typically that person's a white person, um, that person, you know, I'll maybe give my order or say my request and the person will look at me like, um, like I've got 20 heads, like, I, you know, they didn't understand what I said. So I'll repeat it eloquently and um, maybe even articulate, articul yeah, artic <laughs> I articulate, I enunciate my words, you know, maybe I kind of mumbled a little bit, you know, I'm hungry, you know, whatever. And then, um, you know, uh, they look at me, you know, and, and maybe by the, the second or third time, you can see the look on my face, you know, it's taken, you know, a, a few months into living here for you to kind of recognize that was happening. And yeah. so as soon as you repeat what I say verbatim, whoever is 
serving us at that time automatically gets it. Mm. And it's almost like, did you did you just see that happen? And you know, when you started to really, um, really see it, how did that land for you when you were able to actually physically see the effects of racism, of of how it's played out in, in an everyday racism way? Well, a lot of it is learning the code, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, let me just start with this. Like every now, one time I I posted on Facebook, "Wake up, people!" and the reaction was was really, really almost violent to it. And I realized that that's like kind of a dirty phrase to. to a certain sector of our population. Why? Well, because they don't understand it. What do you mean, wake up? I'm, I'm, I'm awake just because I have a different opinion than you. But what people don't understand is that that haven't woke up at all is if they think about their experiences through life, they've woken up many times mm. in all sorts of of things that it may have nothing to do with race or anything it could have to do just in your job. Mm. We have these ahas where we like, Oh, wow. I didn't see that before. Now I see it all the time. Mm. Right. And so when you become aware of something, that's when you start to see it more readily. Right. Mm. And so like this whole thing of being woke is bullshit because we're going through a, basically going through life through a series of micro wokes. I would say we have microaggressions, we have micro wokes. Hmm. So interesting. Like we start to to chip away by 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 our realizations, right? And so as we go through life, we become more aware. A, a case in point. In 2010, there was uh, they had the 20th episode the 20th year anniversary of of uh survivor mm. and uh you and i watched it recently because mm. we wanted to see some of these older players f- for some reason and and so we're watching it and we get to this scene where james this uh uh a black contestant uh is is giving a win one for the gipper kind of speech to mm-hmm. his team Mm-hmm. And two of the teammates mm. took it as a negative mm-hmm. and and viewed it as aggressive behavior. Right. One of them was a firefighter. And one of them was a fire fireman. Mm-hmm. And who I can't stand as a character, that dude. <laughs> Especially now. I couldn't stand him then. So now the crazy thing is I remember even this is ten years ago, this mm-hmm. survivor happened. I don't remember a lot of them, but this one I remember because I remember like sitting there going, Well, that's weird. Why are they why do they think that? Mm-hmm. I didn't even get it. It made no sense to me. I don't see that. And to me it was just a, a simple matter of a disagreement mm-hmm. in in perception, right? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But it bothered me. Mm-hmm. I remember it bothered me, mm-hmm. but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. 
Well, fast forward 10 years, we watch it, and I look at it, and I go, oh, my God, they're using all the language, all the racist language. Right. They're using, they have used specific buzzwords that you go, oh, 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 this is all white privilege. Right. Every bit of it. And so now I look at it and I can pick off the white privilege like that, wow. right? So does that make me woke? No, but it makes it so that I recognize that situation when it happens, right? Uh -huh. So in that sliver, uh -huh. I'm woke. Mm -hmm. And so and once you get a little taste of that, mm -hmm. you start to get, well, what the hell else am I not seeing? <laughs> right mm. <laughs> and then it becomes kind of like this this challenge all right wow. how different is the reality of the world from my perception of the world right and <clears throat> wow it's a difficult I, i'm not going to tell you that i it's not like i every week i come up with a new one i don't mm. they're few and far between mm -hmm. it's a very long process and and it's not something necessarily that can be attacked it's kind of like has to be experienced. Like whatever happens in my day-to-day -day life is what gives me my experiences. And that's what I have to evaluate, right? I can't go out and put myself in a situation in these situations. They just they're gonna have to happen naturally. So mm -hmm. for instance, if someone's if, that's why a white couple will not be so quick to come to the realizations that I came to as being a white man with a Latina, because I see it. Mm. I witness it. Mm. It's part of my life now. And so it becomes recognizable. Now, everything in life is patterns. We see patterns. That's how we, we're, we're, we're designed to see, locate, and learn patterns. And, as, and we take the patterns and they become, and then we put the patterns together and they become modules. And so they become bigger patterns. And so that's what court vision is when someone can look at, at a basketball game like a coach, a really you know skilled coach, and he knows where everybody is and doing what and why and how. And so he has this broad, huge vision of mm. it. Well, it's the same thing in life and we and it's patterns. And so but we need to be actively trying to recognize the patterns. And if we work hard to recognize the patterns, then we will see the patterns. Mm. And well, for white people, mm -hmm. those patterns are a part of how you're raised. All of us. Right. And seeing them for what they are, you know, as, as almost like a, a, a revealing the trauma. You know, why do, why do people act a certain way? And then when people start to look into that uh, of how people act, people begin to understand the traumas that have led them to act those ways, right? Like if it's hysterical, it's historical. Right. And um, a lot of these um, things that you share about the code, you know, that's historical. That's passed on. That's what we call intergenerational trauma that keeps on being passed on. The trauma is not only for the self. The trauma is also inflicted on others. Right. So people of color, we can see this. This is something that we've known. You know, I've not been served in restaurants. I know what that's like. Um, you know, microaggressions abound on the daily uh, just the other day, I was being followed in the store, in a grocery store, minding my own business, shopping for groceries. 
And so that kind of stuff um, is different. It doesn't happen when we're together. Those kinds of things don't happen when we're together. I'm out in public and I'm subjected to different treatment than I am than we're together. Mm -hmm. So when I come home and I share with you these stories, you know, this thing happened, this thing happened, and, you know, going back to being believed, you know, you can either go, oh, that's just your imagination, or you can go, wow, it happened, and where? That sucks. You know, wow, what happened? And that shifts the dynamic mm -hmm. and creates a space of healing right. uh, in the relationship, not only for the trauma that was just experienced by the microaggression or also known as racial abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, because I saw the guy do it to a black man that was standing there. Same thing, standing behind him, intimidating him. The same thing that he tried to do to me. And, you know, I basically told him to fuck off in so many words energetically. And he did. And, um, and I watched him as he was trying to intimidate uh, a black man standing at the freezer, <laughs> trying to pick out dinner, <laughs> you know, trying to pick out something, veg, frozen vegetables, I don't know, whatever. And he was standing right behind him, like nearly breathing on his neck. And I was standing there looking at him in the checkout line, just eyeballing him. Like, I dare you. I dare you because I will take one of these cans and throw it at your head so hard <laughs> from across the store, it'll make your fucking head spin. So <laughs> glad you didn't do that. I'm glad I didn't do that. But you know, that's that's at the level of trauma that we're at in this nation. We're we're looking out for each other. Is like we gotta look out for each other and also be ready to step in in a powerful in a powerful way to destroy whatever racial abuse or harassment is going on at that moment. Yeah, I also think it requires uh, 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 you need to be active. Like you can't just go through life saying, well, I'm not going to be racist. I'm going to treat people well, and that's that. And so then I'm doing my part. We actually like have to go – white people actually have to go out of their way to uh, – Do the work. Well, not just do the work but like – okay. Let me just – let me back up for a second. I think that for every uh, thing that I witness happen to you, hmm. I can picture myself or a white person doing it to a white person too. And so what that does is it creates an equality in your mind of the acts. Right. Like I say, oh, so you do it to each other. <laughs> <laughs> right. So if you have that equality in your mind, then you go, oh, well, I've done that. So I got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. No, no. The, it's not that it's not that any aggression could be happened between any two people. It's that they happen all the time from white people to brown people. Right. And so the perspective is different because when it happens all the time, then you expect it when it's a rarity or when, you know, then you don't. So anyway, I, I'm not sure I made my point as great. In this. 
but <laughs> what do you think white people need to do so that they can show up in uh, ways of protection and not persecution with people of color, especially when they're in relationships with people of color? You have to be vigilant. You know, you can't just go and say, well, I didn't even notice you were brown. You know, well, if you don't notice that someone's brown, then... That's fucked up. Then <laughs> basically what you're saying is, I don't notice any of the shit you got to deal with. Mm. Right? Mm. That's what I'm saying. You got a, 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 a note from a guy in an incident that's going on that said, well, I didn't even notice you were Hispanic. This is for someone from the state. And it's like, yeah, well, that's the problem. Because mm -hmm. if you had noticed she was Hispanic, then you would have thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it this way. Right. Because she might view it this way. Mm. Right? But if that person decides, oh, race doesn't matter, then they're being completely insensitive to what you have to deal with with your race. Mm. They're saying to you, that doesn't matter. We're even. I'm going to treat everybody even. That doesn't work. How do you think brown people in relationships, BIPOC in relationships with white people, from a white perspective, holding you accountable, holding the white significant other accountable for slips so to say like racist slips and that being met with aggression and no that didn't really happen and I didn't really say that and you didn't understand me and that's not what I meant and all of those things how or what is a constructive way to hold the white significant other accountable in a biracial relationship where it's healthy and doesn't erupt in a uh, fury of feelings and unheard uh, trauma and unmet expectations. Well, the weird thing is I don't think we have this issue. And maybe uh, it's almost as if you should speak to this more than me because, like, as you're saying all of this, I'm like, wow, we don't really actually – I don't ever feel that I can recall that – you judge me for racism. And I don't feel that I can't think of a time that I slipped, quote unquote. It's, to me, that would be to signify, uh, I don't know. I think you brought up a, a, a you brought up something really important with with that is that it doesn't come from a place of judgment. Right. When a person of color, when a BIPOC says to their white significant other, wow, man, that was racist, it's not a judgmental statement. It's not from a place of judgment. It's a place of, it comes from a place of observation. And there's a very fine line between judgment and observation, and there's also a huge distinction. When a person of color BIPOC says to their significant other hey that was that was racist you know then I think it's important for the uh, significant 
col- a significant other that's white to, you know, take it take the time to reflect on that and instead of receiving it as an attack, receive it as an opportunity to um, reevaluate their, you know, how they're saying or what they're saying so they can then go, well, how can I not make it racist? Or, you know, I apologize that, that, you know, I apologize for saying that uh, how could I say it in a way that's not racist? Which gives people the opportunity to grow together instead of yeah. growing apart <clears throat> in a biracial relationship by one person saying, hey, that that was racist. And the other person is saying, um, you know, no, that's not. Now, on the opposite end of it, in no way, shape or form is it okay for the white significant other to look at uh, their their BIPOC significant other and say that was racist. No, there's you can't be racist to me. Right. It's not possible. I have all the advantages. Right, and I think that that is often used in you cannot be oppr- you cannot oppress your oppressor. How does that work? And obviously, I'm not your oppressor. We're married, but I'm just saying that like. A person of color could say a racially judgmental thing about me, but I don't have, I don't have pain associated with that. Mm. You call me a cracker, makes me laugh. Yeah, I'm a cracker <laughs> because there's no generational pain from that. It wasn't used to whip me. It wasn't used to put me in my place. It wasn't used to 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 oppress my people. It was used to basically say, you know. You're not treating us right, so we're you know we're not gonna treat you with respect, and I get it. Mm. So, and it's not personal; it's white people, mm. you know. So, the importance of recognizing whiteness in a relationship is is also something that is often uh, a misguided narrative in biracial relationships when people forget that they are in a biracial relationship and I think sometimes people take for granted that people do come from different uh, heritage lineage or different races Um, I know when I spent uh, five years almost five years in Australia I got to a point where I didn't even hear the accent anymore you know, yeah. and I think that's you know that in relationships, people, you know, tend to forget about the racial stuff until it comes up, because what's there is love. I can't forget about I can't forget about it with you. But you know, you're pure living, Latina, <laughs> indigenous. Especially Latina. now that you moved here, you're way more <laughs> yeah. Latina here than you were in California. Because I stick out here, right? I stick out here. I am. I cannot be white passing here no matter how hard i try to be white i can get as pasty as i can in the middle of winter and i still won't be received as white passing here it just doesn't it doesn't fly i cannot uh, be anonymous like i can be in a multicultural city like los angeles or new york or miami yeah i am very uh, people see me 
they see me coming, they react and act accordingly. But at the same to time, that's what's that's what sparked all of this stuff. So I mean, you know, for both of us, um, to become aware of how to navigate uh, being in a biracial relationship was something that we never really discussed before because it wasn't something that was presented to us in a way where we needed to be worried about persecution or protection. Right. And for the first two years, it was just a non-issue. It wasn't right. even like I didn't think about it. Right. So <clears throat> so thank you for protecting me in um, such a racist environment. <laughs> I, do, I do defer to you when I see a microaggression starting to bubble up and um, – I appreciate you not questioning me or looking at me going, what are you doing or why are you doing this? Instead of doing anything like that, um, you just take over and handle it. And I appreciate that. Do you have any uh, teachings or any wisdom that you would like to bring in for people uh, that are in biracial relationships so they can grow together in awareness and love? If both parties want to grow together, you will grow together. But you have to, you have to act. It has to be active. Mm. Because people change. We all change. It's all life is dynamic. Mm. Our brains change. Our attitudes change. Our bodies change. Our likes change. And so if those changes don't happen together, that's what's going to cause you to grow apart, right? So mm. we consciously are always trying to find things that uh, we both like. We're constantly trying to uh, understand each other's perspectives to appreciate each other's perspectives. Mm. Uh, I didn't know I was going to get into relationship advice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prepare for that. Mixer man's relationship <laughs> advice coming to you. Oh, I, I hear a song today. coming. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> relationship advice. Bye, mixer man. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's that's all I can think of today. I'm sure we could hit all that that a little bit more if I can think about it a little longer. All right, thank you very much. All I right. appreciate it. Sure. And that concludes our subject of today, um, uh, which brings us to the gratitude shout out. The gratitude shout out goes to all the people taking to the streets to fight against corruption and the rights of people and land. We are hearing you. We honor you, and we will do our best to make sure your message is heard around the world. All right, can I announce the next one? The Cocotazo of the Week? Oh, you just said it. And now, the Cocotazo of the Week goes to... People that say... I have a BIPOC significant other, so I cannot be racist. 
I think that people don't really realize just how deep their biases go. Oh, oh. oh God. Jeez. Why? Oh, it just gets you me, You cannot unravel the biases that we as white people have in a lifetime. It's not possible. So all you can do is the best you can do, but you better try hard and you better work at it. That's what I say. Right. And then when you have your first aha, when you have your first awakening, oh, it's so exciting. And then now you start to feel like you can, you know, figure this shit out. But you won't until you're dead. <laughs> but at least you try. Hey, that's all we can do is show up yeah. and try. Mm-hmm. And do better. Because mm-hmm. once you know better, you do better. Truth. And that's that's all... That's all we ask is for people to show up, to do better, to be better, so that we can all rise together. Yeah. The philanthropy initiative we've started, uh, this podcast is um, featuring a website called Native Appropriations. Adrienne Keene has been doing the work of bringing awareness to cultural appropriation since before 2013. Adrienne runs a webpage called Native Appropriations, which is a forum for discussing representation of Native peoples, including stereotypes, cultural appropriation, news, activism, and more. To donate and help Adrian get this important message out to the mainstream, her PayPal account is A J Keen, A J K E E N E at gmail.com. And the purpose is Native Appropriations. Please include a note and say thank you for the work that you're doing, Adrian. We commend you, we honor you, and we're grateful that you are fighting the good fight and bringing awareness to the harm of uh, appropriation to uh, indigenous knowledge, indigenous people around the world. Thank you, uh, Wisdom Protector. This concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Eric, for being here. And in our next podcast, we'll be featuring Courtney Jessup Nichols, who hosts the podcast 40 AF, to talk about healing white privilege and the real deal of Southern racism from a white perspective. Any questions you might have for Courtney and I regarding the subject matter for next week, please share to Global Decolonization Initiative Facebook group or by email gdiriseup at gmail.com and we will answer them in the upcoming podcast. Thanks for listening, supporting, and continuing to rise up. And like my grandpa used to say, I'll see you when I see you. And if I don't see you, I'll see you. Thank you.